0: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company.
1: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting
1: lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where
0: prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round.
2: We had a big bear of a man, who was called Evans, who was on roadie, and uh, mm-hmm. I was coming back on the plane, and he said... Will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. I said, "What, Sergeant
1: Pepper?" Listen to McCartney: A Life and Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get
0: your podcasts. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. In 2017 more than 70,000 people in the United States died of drug overdoses. Two-thirds of those deaths were linked to opioids. This opioid epidemic has cost the United States $2.5 trillion between 2015 and 2018, according to an estimate recently released by the White House Council of Economic Advisers. Now, we're addressing this crisis by trying to hold the companies responsible to account with the help of the law. In order to begin to understand how it's going, it's worth looking back to the tobacco litigation, which is the last time that the United States tried to address a major public health crisis via lawsuits and litigation. That litigation took place mostly in the 1990s, and the way it happened is that in almost every state, the attorney general of the state a government official, filed a lawsuit on behalf of the state against the major tobacco-producing companies like Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds. Then what happened is that all of those lawsuits, 46 in total, were brought together by the courts and settled in one fell swoop. The result was that there was a tremendous transfer of money from the big tobacco companies to these 46 states, in which, in principle, the tobacco companies compensated the states for the money that they had spent in dealing with the consequences of people using tobacco. On the one hand, that settlement satisfied both the state attorneys general and the tobacco companies. The states got an enormous amount of money, And the tobacco companies got a definitive end to litigation so they could turn around and tell their shareholders there won't be any more lawsuits coming down the pike against us. Yet at the same time, the tobacco litigation raised a deep and fundamental question of whether the distribution of money that took place was fair. As we're about to hear, this time when it comes to the opioid crisis, the lawsuits are actually a little bit different. Instead of being brought only by state attorneys general, the lawsuits are also being brought by hundreds and hundreds and indeed thousands of local governments around the United States who want a piece of the action and are frustrated that they did not get direct payments from the tobacco companies in the aftermath of the tobacco litigation settlement. As you can tell, these issues are tricky and they are legal. And so we turn to Professor Abby Gluck of the Yale Law School. She is director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale. And she is an expert in the vagaries and complexities of the opioid litigation. Abby, we're starting to hear lots of headlines about lawsuits with big settlements against drug companies. We're hearing about settlements that the companies are reaching voluntarily before a case goes to trial. Why are we hearing this? Who thinks that lawsuits are the way to solve a problem like the opioid crisis?
2: So there is no health law expert who thinks that litigation is the way to solve a massive public health crisis. Uh, Of course, uh, stakeholders turn to other venues first, most prominently legislatures. State legislatures were asked to act. The Congress was asked to act. Congress passed a relatively toothless bipartisan bill that threw money at the problem, but didn't actually address most of the systemic problems um, that have led to the cause of the opioid crisis. And in the states, almost every state has passed a slew of laws, things like laws that limit the number of pills that doctors can prescribe, but it just hasn't been enough to get states and local governments the relief they need. And what they need right now is money. And when they need money and they're not getting that from their governments, They're looking to the courts to help them with that.
0: Can I ask a somewhat cynical question? So is somebody gaining by these lawsuits? I mean, are there private attorneys who are representing parties who have money, uh, you know, on the table to make through contingent fee agreements? Or is this whole process somewhat less bound up in those kinds of lawyer incentives than say the tobacco lawsuits were?
2: No, there's definitely a lawyering story here. Um, But to really understand the lawyering story. You have to understand the political economy of the landscape of the opioid litigation. So there are about 2,800 cases that have currently been filed and they've been filed by a mix of plaintiffs. Some of those plaintiffs are Native American tribes. Some of those plaintiffs are state attorneys general uh, and those plaintiffs are represented by their typical counsels. Uh, then there are um, thousands of cases that have been filed by state and local governments and that is a new variety uh, a new thread that we did not see in the tobacco litigation and arguably comes from the tobacco history because when the tobacco settlements were given out several decades ago, many local governments felt that they got the shaft. They felt that they were not given the money they needed, that the money went into state general treasuries, that the money was not actually directed at tobacco cessation. So they were very open to the idea of bringing lawsuits themselves. The plaintiffs bar approached uh, those state uh, those local governments. Offers represent them on a contingency fee basis. So it's effectively risk-free, and have brought those cases into court. And that is why you're seeing thousands of cases brought by local governments as well as state attorneys general. And to be frank, many of the state attorneys general are very unhappy that there is this local thread to the litigation because they have made the argument that they're the ones who are supposed to be suing on behalf of the state. They're the ones who are supposed to be negotiating with these companies.
0: So this is a fascinating issue that you're describing here. So Tell me if I'm getting it right. As a result of the tobacco litigation in which local governments, rather than state governments, felt like they didn't get all the money that they could have gotten or they didn't get all the money that was on the table, they decided they were willing to bring suits. And they have private lawyers representing them who stand to make money, unlike when a state sues, if it's a state attorney general's office, they don't stand to make any individual or personal money as a result of of the lawsuit. So the bottom line, though, is that with 2,800 cases, You've got a way more complicated landscape of litigation, to use your term, than existed even for the pretty darn complicated tobacco litigation.
2: Oh, yeah. But actually, no, it's much more complicated than that, because uh, what you have to keep in mind is only about 2000 localities have sued. But there are 30,000 other cities and counties (laughs) across the United States and everybody knows that when these 2000 localities sue for x number of dollars the next day we're going to see a couple thousand more bringing new suits and a couple thousand more bringing new suits so the whole ball game for the last year has been trying to get everybody's arms around the entire scope of liability and that's not just these 2800 cases it's every possible case that might come after that is always in the mind of the parties that are trying to settle that has been the challenge from the beginning of how to effectively get global peace, even though only a small fraction of the local governments are actually currently in the case.
0: So lay it out for us. What are the possible avenues to get what a lawyer would call global peace and what a company would call, please, nobody sue us anymore. You know, we've paid off all the money we have to pay out. So what are the possible paths to getting to the end of all of this?
2: So I have to give you a little more background on the political landscape. So as you know, Noah, uh, we have state courts in this country and we have federal courts in this country, and neither has control over what happens in the other side. So on the federal side, we have several different mechanisms that allow courts to aggregate uh, litigation when lots of similar cases are filed to try to get to a global resolution. One of those is class actions. Uh, In the context of the opioid litigation, class actions have not been Um, viewed as the answer because the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to bring class actions when it comes to cases that involve health. The Supreme Court requires a lot of commonality uh, in certifying a class, and it's very hard to prove that people are harmed in the same way when it comes to health cases. So everybody is of the position that you're not going to be able to get your arms around the complete scope of litigation just by using a class action.
0: So what are the other federal solutions available before we get to this question of states?
2: So, when cloud actions are not available, a different mechanism has kind of stepped into the breach to address the problem of mass aggregation. And that's called a multi-district litigation. Uh, it's a uh, comes from a federal statute, twenty eight USC fourteen oh seven, that was passed about fifty years ago to deal with a very different problem of utility litigation. In the last couple decades, multi district litigation has been resorted to when class actions are not available. And the way it works is that it allows the consolidation in a single federal courtroom for pre trial resolution of similarly situated claims filed across the country. The key is that it's pre-trial resolution. A class action goes to the ultimate trial, the ultimate settlement. But with the multi-district litigation, the idea is that the judge winnows the claims, uh, tries to streamline things, takes care of discovery in a consolidated fashion, and then sends everybody home to try the cases in their own jurisdictions. But the fact of the matter is that virtually never happens The very fact that big cases are consolidated into an MDL in the first place generally uh, signals that everybody thinks a trial or individual trials are unrealistic. And the goal of the MDL generally is to efficiently settle the cases. That has certainly been what's been happening in the opioid litigation. In this litigation, about a year ago, about 2,000 of these cases were consolidated into a single federal courtroom in Cleveland for a judge named Dan Polster, That judge said in his very first opening statement in the case that he was not interested in bringing these cases to trial. He thought he was dealing with a massive ongoing public health crisis, and he made clear his goal was to settle and to settle quickly. Now, that would be enough of a challenge. But you've then got the whole state legal landscape. There are several hundred, about four to five hundred state cases that have been filed by state attorneys general and other plaintiffs, including some localities, some cities and counties in their state courts. And the federal court has no power, no jurisdiction over those four to 500 state cases. So even if you could get a settlement in the MDL, in Cleveland, in that big case, you're not gonna have a global settlement because there's still gonna be several hundred cases left out in the state court system. So you're in Cleveland, you're a defendant, you're trying to settle these claims, you wanna get global peace. Without the class action, the parties in Cleveland had to get very creative. Over the summer, By most accounts, it appears that they put their heads together and effectively innovated a brand new form of civil procedure. They have suggested that there should be something called a negotiation class. It's inspired by a class action. And the idea is that they're making the argument that the localities in the MDL are sufficiently representative of those in the rest of the country that... Once notice is given to all of the localities across the country, these localities can negotiate on behalf of everybody else and settle these cases on behalf of all relevant counties, even the ones that are not yet in this litigation.
0: Now, that's that's fascinating. This is this is very, very important. And I want to pause here because, you know, from the lawyer's standpoint, everything you're saying crackles off the page. But I want us to be clear for non-lawyers who might be listening. If if you're still listening, non-lawyers, please don't, please don't turn the dial. Um, what is going on here? And here's what I think would be a useful piece of background. I think if you don't go to law school, you hear the words class action, you think that's something that plaintiffs want. You think that it's people who are doing the suing who like the idea of a class action because they can combine together the claims of lots of different people. And get a lot of money instead of a little bit of money. But once you enter the incredibly arcane and complex world of class actions, what you discover is there are also lots of circumstances where the defendants, the ones who have done the harm and are being sued, love class actions because what they want is for the case to be over. They want to turn around and say to their shareholders, We've done everything we're going to have to do. We've paid out our last nickel. And now we can get on with the business of being a company again without having these big overhanging. Potential civil liabilities. So, in the absence of the opportunity for a class action, the defendants, and correct me if I'm going wrong here, Abby, really are trying to find some way to be sure that it's all over, that they won't settle with one group of people and then have another group of people appear and say, hey, guess what? Now we're suing you. And it sounds from what you're saying, like they're trying to invent on the fly some new legal technology that will allow them to be sure after they've settled cases that there won't be new cases arising. Am I getting that right?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, would, I would amend it slightly. Uh, I, I think it was a, a very long thought out process that was over the summer, so not on the fly, but also not novel to the MDL. So multi-district mm-hmm. litigation, because it is this, you know, Wild West form of civil procedure that stepped into the breach to solve a problem that it wasn't really designed to, is known for innovating new procedural mechanisms. This is definitely that on steroids, probably the most extreme version of creative procedural innovation that we've seen in MDL, but it's not unprecedented in the sense that that's what MDLs do. That's why some people love them, that's why some people think they're lawless. But yes, the parties got together and they said, we need a way to get global peace. We need a way to basically settle this case on behalf of the entire country. Even though only a slice of local governments are actually in the case so far, we need a way for it to look fair. So we are going to create something that looks like a class action, even though we can't have a class action. We're going to send notice to 30,000 local governments over the next two months and tell them, we're going to negotiate on your behalf unless you opt out. And once they opt in, uh, we're going to settle the case and hold everybody to that. Now, if that seems wild, it is. But remember, in a regular class action, that's also what happens. Once you put notice out and certify the class, you can resolve a case on behalf of all of those parties, the ones in the courtroom and the ones who aren't in the courtroom. That's what they're trying to do. So will it work? work? I think think the big danger is that it's going to be tied up in litigation for a very long time. So I would not be surprised um, if. This question, can there be such a thing as a negotiation class, makes it up to the Supreme Court. The reason it wouldn't is that most of the parties in these cases like it, right? The defendant and the plaintiffs want such a resolution. The state attorneys general have been the ones that are the most opposed thus far. They don't like it because it gives their local governments a mechanism to settle these cases, even perhaps before the state AGs can get their own settlements. So if we see these cases going up, it's going to be, I think, large part pushed by the state attorneys general trying to get some opposition to these cases in front of the Supreme Court. The other issue is that you have to have a settlement number for a negotiation class to work. We need two pieces. We need this new form of civil procedure to be upheld. Uh, and then we need to get to a settlement in the, in the second place.
0: Can I ask, this is obviously a very ballpark question. As, I, as you point out, negotiations can break down at any moment. But what's the order of magnitude that a settlement would take? How many billions of dollars are we actually talking about?
2: So I don't think anybody really knows the complaints that were filed in these cases did not ask for any specific numbers. Uh, so we're talking, you know, it would be surprising if the number was less than 50 billion. And most likely in the end, it'll be something higher than that. But again, it's it's, it's risky to hazard a guess.
0: So when that money, if, when and if, obviously it's a big if, if there is some kind of a settlement going from the companies that manufactured the opioids to cities, towns, and states. What in the real world is likely actually to happen to that money? I mean, some of it obviously will go into general budget in places that have overspent their existing budgets trying to deal with the fallout of the opioid crisis. But will there be any prevention element there? Is it all going to be just to play catch up against past damages? In the real world, what what will all that money mean?
2: Well, I think your assumption that some of that money just going to go into the state general treasury may not ultimately prove to be the case. That turned out to be uh, one of the most controversial outcomes of the tobacco litigation, uh, that the money went to state general treasuries and wasn't specifically directed toward abatement or prevention. Uh, And that's what a lot of the uh, plaintiffs in these cases are trying to avoid. Uh, There's going to be uh, a fight again. Internal to each state about how this money is spent and who controls it. Uh, in Oklahoma, over the summer, there was supposed to be a trial against a bunch of companies. Some of the companies settled, and the very first settlement, uh, Purdue Pharma, settled with the state of Oklahoma, and the money was sent to a university precisely so that it would not go into the state general treasury. The Oklahoma legislature got very upset, raised uh, a huge ruckus. So the next settlement that came around, which was Teva, uh, the generic manufacturer that money did go to the Oklahoma treasury. So that's a great example of the kind of fights you're going to see uh, as the settlement numbers come out.
0: And that's because politicians are politicians. And when money is on the table, each one of them is going to want it for their relevant constituency.
2: Yeah, it also happens to be the case that when state attorneys generals sue, uh, the way their recovery funds work, the money isn't always directly sent to, you know, the target of the lawsuits in the first place there is that were harmed. They're often go to the, the general fund that was what happened with tobacco. Uh, when the, In the case of a public health crisis, where there are some counties within a state that have been hurting more than other counties and different kinds of harms, prevention and treatment are not the same kinds of harms. Money has to go to different places to deal with prevention and treatment. Uh, it's complicated. And a good use of the funds would think through the various causes of the crisis, the various ways in which the counties are hurting and try to make sure those funds are directed in some way.
0: What I'm hearing is not optimism from you. I mean, I'm not hearing from you either that there's great optimism that this will all be solved soon or that the large sum of money that's going to eventually change hands is necessarily going to be used in ways that are actually in the real world effective. So my first question is on this point, am I right that I'm not hearing a lot of optimism? I mean, I think of you, Abby, as a very optimistic person. You want, you like to solve things and make them work better, but you don't sound so optimistic this time.
2: Now, I think you're overreading uh, my pessimism. I, it's, it's more of a realism. I'm optimistic that there's going to be a settlement. I am less certain that the money is going to be dispersed in ways that are actually targeted to the problem. Uh, I'm encouraged by uh, some states' efforts to start drafting legislation in preparation for the receipt of these funds to say when money comes in, it has to go to X, Y, and Z. I think that would be helpful. I also think that we have a judge in Cleveland who has not been afraid to get his hands into this. this, And he does not seem to be running out the door. Right. So I think when we get a settlement from him in an ideal world, the settlement is going to be structured, is going to say where the money is going to go. And Judge Polster is going to watch it. Um, But I am less optimistic that money is going to solve a public health crisis. I don't think any health expert thinks that money can abate a public health crisis. Money can help cities put money back in their coffers when they've already paid for a health, public health crisis. But we have 14 states that have an expanded Medicaid. That's a huge portion of the population that has no access to health care because they don't have insurance. That would do a heck of a lot to stop, help the public health crisis. That's a legal solution that has nothing to do with what's going on in the courtroom. We also have some very antiquated federal laws on the books that make it extremely difficult for doctors to treat opioid use disorder and addiction. It requires you to go to a separate location, not your doctor's office, to get methadone. That's a barrier. And it actually limits the number of patients any one doctor can treat for opioid addiction with another drug, buprenorphine, at a time. We don't regulate any other kind of treatment this way. Any Joe Schmo can prescribe an opioid. And when people get addicted, it's very hard to treat them. And those are legal problems. Those are system problems. And none of that is going to be solved by this litigation.
0: Does any other country on earth think that litigation is even part of the way you should go about addressing crises like these? Or is this a craziness that is distinctively American?
2: You know, to my knowledge, this is a uniquely American phenomenon, but that is the backbone of our litigation system. You know, we use our litigation system and the adversary system to hold the government accountable, to hold parties accountable, um, pro and con. but. Uh, We are unique in this regard. A lot of countries look on us, uh, I think, uh, with an an eyebrow raised.
0: I mean, I think it might have to be (laughs) more than an eyebrow as, as we walk into this crisis. Do you have any faith that when there is some other similar crisis, the next public health crisis generated by big companies of some kind or another, that they would take a deep breath before trying to make a lot of money on a product like tobacco or like opioids, thinking somewhere down the road, we're going to have to pay a very high price? Or do you think that rational, you know, money maximizing corporate actors in the future would say, you know what, it's always a question of rolling the dice here in the United States. And we always know we could get sued, whether we did anything bad or not. So let's just try to make as much money as we can. And if we're sued, eventually we'll deal with that problem when we come to it. Because if that's the case, then I feel as though we're in a kind of you know, repetition compulsion, that we just, we do the same thing again and again and again. And as you say, we use the money to abate it, but we don't really solve it.
2: You know, I think that that question overlooks key factors about both the tobacco cases and the opioid cases. And that is that this is not just a case of a successful drug that had unforeseen side effects that addicted a lot of people and caused a lot of health problems. This, at least according to the allegations, is like tobacco, is a case in which companies had a drug, they knew the drug had addictive and harmful properties and covered that up and then made money off of it. So it's not just litigation that is a deterrent, uh, it's sort of honest services in corporate dealing that should be a deterrent for this. So I, I don't think you're gonna stop American capitalism trying to maximize their profits from a successful drug that remember, has valid medical uses, is approved by the FDA, is necessary for many kinds of surgeries and for people dying with cancer. So, you know, a company arguably shouldn't, you know, be deterred from producing those kinds of drugs because they're helpful to society. But what this litigation should hopefully deter companies from doing is lying, covering up, uh, committing arguable acts of fraud on the public to get people hooked on drugs that they're representing is not addictive. Now, we haven't had a trial. Those claims haven't been proved. But those are the allegations that are being made. Those are the kinds of things that were particularly damaging to Johnson & Johnson when they went on trial in Ohio and some in Oklahoma and some public documents came out. I think that's why we're seeing this move towards settlement. Uh, These companies don't want to go on trial. They don't want to incur the kind of reputational harm that would come from not from trying to maximize profits, but from covering up Harmful aspects of a drug that they're aggressively marketing and not telling anybody about. I think that's a deterrent. I hope that's the deterrent. And we'll have to see uh, if the numbers are big enough to make that happen.
0: Is that enough of a deterrent, though, Abby? I mean, if you know that when push comes to shove, you can settle rather than take the embarrassment, sure, it's going to cost you some money down the road, but it doesn't seem like a very powerful deterrent to lying. I mean, you know, if people working for companies have actually lied and covered up very dangerous consequences of their products, Shouldn't we be talking more in terms of criminal sanctions? Or, which yeah, really well, are much more effectively I mean, deterrent. Mm-hmm. There are a slew
2: of criminal cases that have been filed, so I do think mm-hmm. that's part of the. I think that's a big part of the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have seen a bunch of criminal cases. We also are seeing companies going out of business over this. Purdue Pharma is going to go out of business over this, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if that's not enough of a deterrent, then we need sort of a a wholesale revamping of our of our legal system. But hopefully, criminal charges, reputational damage and the potential for going out of business should be enough to get companies to act.
0: Last question, Abby. So all of what we've been talking about is about trying to hold the pharma companies liable for what they've done. Is there something that the rest of us consumers should be doing now or or in the future to think about what we might do to try to avoid crises like this arising in, in the future? Or is it really just a question of, tweaking the system, making it work properly and creating the right incentives so that companies that obviously have much more information about the content of what they're making and the effects of their products than we do can be, can be held responsible.
2: Well, I think you have to understand that the opioid crisis was not caused by people with back pain, taking too many drugs, right? The drugs were put into the market, um, through the FDA, through medical practice, uh, People did become addicted to them, but then they were diverted uh, to recreational use. The recreational market picked up significantly. People saw an opportunity. Uh, Cheap synthetic versions of that drug were then brought in just like other drugs like heroin, right? It's not that different. And so I think that where we are right now in this phase of the crisis, it's not a consumer issue anymore. It started out as a consumer issue. It has become a, you know, recreational street-level drug use issue that is of a different nature. Um, And so it can't possibly be averted by consumers anymore. Consumers can ask doctors questions. Consumers can try to recognize symptoms of addiction, um, not be embarrassed to go to their doctor and talk about addiction. But the crisis got far bigger than doctors' offices. You know, a number of years ago, there was an early wave of prosecutions, what were called so-called pill mills, doctors that were distributing too many drugs. Where we are now is far beyond that. You don't hear about pill mill cases. We're hearing about major drug trafficking. We're hearing about people dying from a single dose of a drug that looks like an opioid, but is laced with a synthetic version of it that is so dangerous that it can kill a teenager with one drug. It's a very different problem than just a consumer drug problem.
0: Abby, thank you so much for analyzing this, for clarifying it, and for showing us, in fact, just how hard it is uh, to get a solution here, but also for providing some optimism about how we're going to work our way through it going forward. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much, Noah.
1: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round.
2: We had a big bear of a man who was called Mal Evans, who was on roadie, and uh, mm-hmm. I was coming back on the plane, and he said, Will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, What? Sergeant Pepper?
1: Listen to McCartney, A Life and Lyrics on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now for our sound of the week, or really, two sounds. First, this familiar voice. Mr. Gorbachev, teared down this wall. And then, just two years later, this happened. That was the sound of celebration almost exactly 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall, in fact, was breached and people began to be able to move freely back and forth between West and East Berlin. This 30th anniversary is really, in a sense, the anniversary of the end of the Cold War. And it raises a fascinating question Who won? To listen to Ronald Reagan tell it, it was the West that won, with its distinctive combination. Of free market economies and liberal democracy. And that's the narrative that caught on in much of the world in the aftermath of the Cold War. It's certainly the narrative that caught on in the West, the side that thought of itself as having won a victory. Today, it's not so obvious who won the Cold War. It is still pretty clear that communism as an economic system did lose to capitalism. After all, In the direct aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the entire Soviet bloc gave up on communist economic organization and headed in the direction of a market economy. Meanwhile, in the same years, the government of China, though in theory remaining communist, adopted what is essentially a capitalist version of state-owned business. It's still not Western free market capitalism, but it's a distinctive form of Chinese capitalism that the Chinese call socialism with Chinese characteristics. That only makes sense if you realize that the Chinese characteristics are that it's not really socialism. And the consequence of that grand transition of formerly communist economies into capitalist economies has been nothing short of amazing. China rose to become the number two economy in the world, and it's on track eventually to exceed the economy of the United States. That was a direct objective proof of what could happen when you just took away the structure of communist economic organization. No one today is a serious communist from an economic standpoint. Even holdouts like Cuba and North Korea are gradually investing in the process of marketizing, or in other words, capitalizing their economies. Yet the idea that liberal democracy had won a victory over unfree forms of authoritarian government looks increasingly doubtful in the light of events of recent years. China, the same country that adopted capitalism, made no steps whatsoever in the direction of liberalizing politics in its country and no steps in the direction of becoming more democratic. Despite its authoritarian system of government, that has in fact only gotten more authoritarian in the era of Xi Jinping, China's economic growth has continued. Partly under the influence of this Chinese model, countries around the world that were experimenting with liberal democracy in the aftermath of the Cold War have begun to back away from that model. You can think of this in the case of countries like Hungary or Turkey that had democracy, had elections, And then elected strongman leaders who are slowly but surely eroding the basic democratic freedoms that we associate with liberal government. If you're a country that's today trying to figure out how to reform yourself, it's obvious that you would head in the direction of greater capitalism, but it's not at all obvious that you would head in the direction of greater political freedom. And indeed, The rise of populism has even undercut liberal democratic institutions in countries that we think of as lying in the heartland of traditional democracy, countries like the United States in the Donald Trump administration, and even countries like Britain, which is, of course, the original home of modern liberal democracy. What should we make of the fact that capitalism is doing great, but liberal democracy is in a certain amount of trouble? The first lesson I think we should take away from that is that history takes a long time to play itself out. In the euphoria 30 years ago after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was easy to imagine that every aspect of the West had defeated every aspect of communism. And in retrospect, it's pretty clear that that just wasn't so. The second takeaway is that liberal democracies can no longer rest on their laurels and say that the reason liberal democracy is a good form of government Is that it will help you defeat your enemies by making your country the richest and strongest country that it can possibly be. That argument sounded pretty good in the aftermath of the Cold War. That argument sounds terrible today. In its place, liberal democracies have to come up with a different argument, one that says that democracy is good on its own terms. That the reason we should have voting is that every human being is genuinely entitled to a say. That the reason that we have liberal rights is that each human being is entitled to be protected in his or her fundamental dignity. That the reason we have freedom of expression is that part of the human experience that makes it worth being alive is the chance to express your views and try to influence others. The upshot is that democracy cannot say any longer, be a Democrat and win your wars. It must say, be a Democrat because democracy is inherently valuable, even if it doesn't always make your country the most powerful one on the block. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobell. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.
1: ClickGranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round.
2: We had a big bear of a man who was called Mal Evans, who was on Rodi, and uh, mm-hmm. I was coming back on the plane, and he said, Will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, what? Sergeant
1: Beverly. Listen to McCartney, A Life and Lyrics on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.